Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. Another important way of describing the Buddha's teaching, and we're talking about what is Buddhism. One that's not talked about perhaps enough, and one that actually I think I talk about quite a bit. I think I've done several videos on it. Um, the concept of apamada. Apamada is a word that, uh, interestingly, many Buddhists, or quite a few Buddhists, don't really understand very well. I end up talking about it with Buddhists, giving talks on it, and find that people who have been Buddhist all their life don't really have a good sense of what it means. It's a hard word to translate into English. We have some translations, but none of them are quite right. So we have to, this is why it's useful to know the etymology of the word. Apamada comes from pamada, it's the opposite of pamada, so it's actually a negative. Pamada is something, apamada is not being pamada. Pa is a prefix that means, that strengthens or, or gives a special meaning to words. And we'll see that that's what it does in this case. Mada comes from mud. Mud is a root that means to be drunk, to be intoxicated. And in fact, we find the word pamada used in just this way in the fifth precept. So Buddhists keep five precepts. We don't kill, we don't steal, we don't have commit sexual misconduct. We don't lie and we don't take drugs or alcohol. That's what all Buddhist monks are not monks. Those are the basic commandments, if you will. They're not commandments. They are precepts that we take on ourselves and say, this is what we train as Buddhists. If you don't train in these things, you can't really very well be called a Buddhist. For meditators, those of you here, you have to keep eight precepts. Not to kill, not to steal, not to have any romantic or sexual activity, to not to lie and not to take drugs and alcohol, to only eat in the morning, to have no entertainment or beautification, and to sleep on the floor or on a simple bed. As novices, novices take an extra precept. They don't use money or valuables. And Buddhist monks have many, many more. A little background. But the fifth precept for... Well, the precept for all these groups is not to take drugs or alcohol. And the precept explains... When you recite it, you give an explanation as to why. Because these are things... They lead to uh, madja they are intoxicating uh, Pamadatana 
Pamada Tana, they are a cause for Pamada. So it actually, I think it, it has both of them. Madja is the root mud, which means to become drunk or intoxicated. And that intoxication, the physical intoxication, can lead to Pamada, which means a sort of a mental intoxication. Or that's where it comes from. But the word Pamada is used by the Buddha in many different places. It's something that I think isn't given nearly the the importance that it deserves. It's used poetically. The Buddha said, uh, Yopu, he, he, he likened Pamada to being covered over by a cloud, like the bright the, the light of the moon at night when it's covered over by the cloud. He said, Yopube Pamajitwa Pacha Sona Pamajati. Whoever in the past was Pamada and in the in the present becomes or afterwards later on becomes Apamada or not Pamada. Such a person lights up the earth just as the moon coming out from behind a cloud. This is uh This is how it can feel sometimes, no? You feel like you were asleep and now you've woken up or in the dark and now there is light. Meditation is, I think, a real wake-up call, especially when you first start out. It's quite shocking to realize how misguided you've been, how misguided we've been in our minds. You see, it's kind of Amazing how how wrong we were in, in in our thinking about what leads to happiness and what leads to contentment. How blind we were to those things that lead to stress and suffering. So this is what sobering up does. It's like a slap in the face or a splash of cold water or the moon coming up from behind the cloud. It was used in another story, even stronger language, or much stronger language, the story of these two queens, Samavati and Magandhya. One was a very, very bitter and nasty sort of person, and the other was a very pure and, and uh, well-cultivated uh, um, well or, or highly spiritual individual. And so the spiritual queen was a very devout follower of the Buddha. She saw the greatness of him and had uh, her servant woman. I've talked about Samavati before in, in the Dhammapada briefly. But she'd have her servant woman go to learn from the Buddha and come back and teach them all. Amagandhya was very jealous of her and, and tried her best to destroy Samavati. And in the end, had her burnt, had her relatives lock her up in her room and burn her and all of her maidens, like burn down the court, the queen's quarters. And they all died. When the king found out, he killed Magandhya, had her tortured and all of her relatives tortured and killed. Wasn't a very nice king either.
And so the monks were talking about this, talking about both of them dying and how they died, and now it's interesting that one of them was so pure and one of them was so evil, and yet they both suffered terribly. And the Buddha came in and asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we're talking about these two queens that died. And the Buddha differentiated for them. He said, Samavati didn't die, basically is what he said. Magandhya was already dead, but Samavati didn't die. And he said, Appamado uh, amata padang pamado machuno padang. Appamata namiyanti ye pamata yatamata. Which means, pamada uh, is the path to, to death. Appamada is the path of the deathless. Those who are, you know, whoever is, whoever is apamada never dies. And those who are pamada are already dead. So, little explanation. In, in Buddhism, really we're born and die every moment. The only death that we know is the death of experiences. Our experiences die, die, die every moment. Just after they're born, they die. That's a real death. The death that we know of this person died, that person died, it's really only conventional. And because our, our momentary experiences, it's not really a death. I mean, it, it really is, but it's so, you know, it's just one thing and then there's right away another one. So doesn't it all seem like a death? Because of that, he said, you know, really in any meaningful sense the enlightened the, the wise never die then what about the unwise so then for the unwise why what's what's up with them why are they different well they're already dead and again this is how we feel before we gain this clarity of mind like we were dead it was like our life had no meaning in many ways in many cases Maybe could be very successful in the world Maybe even be king of the world I was just thinking of another quote the Buddha said I've got all these quotes in my head Better than king of the world, king of the earth The, the one king of the earth Or of heaven or of, of of heaven or earthly cities better than being the the ruler of the whole world is the attainment of sotapanna sotapati palangwarang the fruition of sotapanna means becoming enlightened seeing nibbana even if you're a poor uh, farmer it's a much greater wealth and this is because dead people can't enjoy can't enjoy things dead people can't really be happy right 
So this comparison of, of people being dead We're like zombies, you know, you hear We talk about this, how we're like zombie workers We go into work 9 to 5 and we come home and Nowadays we're on the computer Like zombies All it takes is a moment of mindfulness And you wake up Suddenly you're living The most important place and, and the reason why we know that Appamada is so important Such an important concept in Buddhism And one that you should all remember Something that you may not have ever heard Unless you've been keeping up with me One that we should all remember Why we know this Is because it was the last words of the Buddha We have recorded what are supposed to be The very last words that the Buddha ever uttered He'd been teaching he'd, he'd left home at 29 And practiced for six years Torturing himself And realized that was no good And went and sat under the Bodhi tree And found the middle way Spent 45 years Tirelessly teaching Sleeping three hours a night Or lying down mindfully Whether he actually slept I'm not sure And for 45 years he taught 45 books In the Thai version there are 45 books So they say one year a book A book a year Is what it works out to But these are not small books It's a huge number of teachings That we have recorded And then when he was lying at his deathbed I mean could you imagine how important those last words must have been And how much um, preparation, or not preparation But how much significance went into choosing his last words What he was going to leave with his, leave his followers with And here's what he said He said Handatani bhikkave amantayamiyo I tell you, O oh monks Here then, monks, I tell you I, Amantayami, I instruct you I exhort you, maybe Vaya Dhamma Sankara All Sankaras, all formations fade away Are of a nature to fade away don't cling to anything, right? Nothing is worth clinging to. Vaya Dhamma Sankara. Everything fades. Appamadena Sampadeta. These are the last words. This is what we always remember. Appamadena Sampadeta. Strive on or, or work to fulfill, work to become full. Come accomplished in Appamada. That was it. The commentary says something really interesting, not here but um, elsewhere. It says the whole of the Buddha's teaching can be summarized as the path of Appamada. So there you go. You want a good explanation of Buddhism? 
Buddha, the practice of Buddhism. So we have to differentiate between Buddhism and the goal or the, the intention. People often focus very much on the goal of Buddhism. So what is Buddhism? It's about be reaching Nibbana, we think, right? Or it's about gaining wisdom or something like that. But Buddhism is not that. Buddhism is the practice which leads to those things. So when we talk about Buddhism, and this is important because it's really the most important thing, focusing on enlightenment, nibbana, um, even insight or wisdom. You know, we talk about this as vipassana meditation, but fo <coughs> focusing on those things is not useful at all. It's putting the cart before the horse. Counting your chickens before they hatch, maybe It's uh, Looking at the product The result If you focus too much on the result You don't actually do the work So Buddhism Is much more about Appamada Than it is about, say, wisdom or, or enlightenment Buddhism Is the practice which leads to enlightenment Which leads to wisdom And that's important as meditators, you shouldn't focus on wisdom. You shouldn't focus on nibbana or enlightenment. You shouldn't set it, maybe set it as a goal, but don't fixate on it. What you should fixate on? Appamada. It's the only one thing. There are many other things that are useful, morality and so on. But Appamada is the most important. It's the key. The commentary says, and the Buddha appears to have said, the whole of the Buddha's teaching, it's really the core. Sakalampihite pitakang buddhavacanang aharitva. The whole of the three pitakas. So if you look on that shelf, I think some of them are there. Or on this shelf, some of them are here as well. Uh, the teaching of the Buddha's, Buddha is, as I said, 45 volumes, but it's organized into three pitakas. The Vinaya pitaka deals with morality. So the things that we try to avoid, basically. Uh, the Sutta Pitaka deals with concentration, so it's very much about meditation practice. It's about focusing your mind on many different things, uh, ideally, ultimately, the present moment. And the third one is wisdom. The Abhidhamma it deals with wisdom, so it talks about the nature of reality as it's experienced by meditators and various uh, permutations and relationships between reality so it's very much about the sort of wisdom that we gain from meditation practice but the commentary says all of these all three of these and all 45 volumes or how many volumes uh, all the thousands of teachings of the Buddha can be summarized by the path of Appamada so what the heck is it? I've purposely not translated it because, as, as I said, it's difficult. But you get the idea that maybe some sort of sobriety, the concept of sobriety, being sober, being unintoxicated, is really what it means. My, probably my favorite translation would be unintoxicated. Unintoxication. Non-intoxication. Because again, it's appamada, it's the not-something. And so we're, we're talking not about physical intoxication, we're talking about mental intoxication. Like when you're addicted to something, you're not thinking clearly, right? 
You notice how when you want to eat something, you want to get something, sometimes you'll do crazy things for it. I mean, drug addicts certainly will, but we as well, we lose our mindfulness. When you're angry, of course, right? If you've ever been angry and you stub your toe on something and get really angry and you start kicking the thing that you stubbed your toe on, yelling at it, cursing it, kicking it, pushing it, totally irrational or how we fight with each other right we hurt those that we love we lash out purposefully trying to harm other people right it's totally irrational harmful just you know it destroys friendships we're like drunk people wandering around in delusion Delusion is like blindness. Delusion is like all these wrong views we have. We were talking today about people who have uh, delusion. All sorts of other religions. I should probably be afraid to say it, but I'm not. Yeah. All these other religions that teach such craziness. God, heaven. Well, heaven's not that crazy, but... Believe X and you'll go to heaven, right? Do X and you'll go to heaven like some magic, like God's watching and he says, okay, that person. Or like there's a guy at the gate when you get to heaven and he says, okay, check, you did X. You blew up a bunch of kids at a concert in the UK, you can get into heaven. There was another bomb for those of you who are here and don't know what's going on in the world. Killed a bunch of kids. Really, really, really evil. People are taught or brainwashed into thinking that somehow that leads to heaven. Total blindness. Worse than blindness. I mean, it's just the worst worst evil, but based on blindness. Blindness will do, let you do anything. Right? You think this is the exit, you run into a wall. You think it's solid ground, you fall into a pit. You think there's no one there, you run into someone. You hurt them, you hurt yourself. You've ever been in a dark room, right? A pitch black room? Just try navigating it without hurting yourself or someone else. That's what wrong view does. Wrong view is the worst. Wrong view is what leads us to do all sorts of wrong things. The Buddha said there's no worse evil than fixed wrong view. Niyata micha diti, which means wrong view that is stable certain you know wrong view is okay if you if you're willing to challenge your views but when you have wrong view and you're stuck on it it's nothing worse so what does it mean what is appamada well, I mean, we have this understanding of it as being non-intoxication. But what does that mean for us, right? You're, none of you are taking drugs or alcohol, I hope. I had one meditator who lied, actually, on the application, just so we would let him come. And halfway through the course, he told me that he was on medication for, for a mental illness. I said, well, we can't really do the course in that case. Because it's clear, I mean, I've been challenged by this and actually yelled at because of, of this. 
claiming that somehow it pre prevents you from progressing, but it does. I mean, I've seen clearly this meditator, at the time he was here, had no conditions, none of the struggles that you're going through, and if he doesn't have any of the struggles, how could he possibly gain the benefit? You know, it has to be natural. You have to let your mind, uh, you know, settle really into a natural state. If you're constantly putting, you know, it's not just the drugs, it's the intention to take them. It's the intention to avoid. Anyway, um, none of you are taking drugs, I hope. If you are, you've lied and you should tell me because lying is a bad thing. Um, but there's a deeper intoxication. And what does it mean to be not intoxicated? Well, we've got clear uh, advice on this. So, in detail, we've got four things. The Buddha gave a talk and he said, Abhyapano sadasato ajatang susamahito abhicha vinaye sukang apamado tiuchati. Which means, Abhyapano. Abhyapano is ill will. So, Abhyapano means someone who is without anger. You know, give up all your vengeance. This is a part of being unintoxicated, right? Something, um, something we don't talk about maybe enough in our, in this course and in this center is loving kindness. It's useful sometimes. I wouldn't spend hours on it, but from time to time, after you meditate, before you meditate to settle your mind and to remember those people who you maybe have problems with who are you're angry at or who are angry at you who have hurt you or who you've hurt and wish them well may they be happy may they be free from suffering may they find peace even those who haven't think about all the people you love or all the people in this building right think about the other people the pe person who slams the ne door next to you or uses the washroom for too long or so on or just who's doing such a great job meditating you know out of appreciation to them wish for them to be happy you know, spend some time each day in that I just read about this this is uh, I was just reading today a, a monk a Sri Lankan monk a very wonderful and, and famous monk uh, talking about reminding monks this is a great thing for monks because we get we receive uh, food from the lay people and the question is you know how can we consider ourselves to be worthy of it and one very important way is to wish them well to have loving kindness for them because it not because it it actually makes our wishes come true necessarily but because it, um, it it cultivates our goodness in ourselves and by cultivating love for them and, and kindness we are cultivating goodness and by cultivating goodness, we become worthy of the food. For, you know. So all of you are being fed here. The food that you're eating is free. So you should wish, wish good thoughts for those people who bring the food as well. Sada sato, number two, the most important one. Always mindful. The, the other... Um, Explanation in another place, uh, I believe it was the Buddha who said, it's either the Buddha or the commentaries, Satya Vipoaso Apamado Tiuchati. To never be without mindfulness, 
This is what it means to be Apamada. And my teacher makes this connection very, very explicit. He says, you know, mindfulness is apamada. So, honestly, if you want the proper translation of the word apamada, it's not a literal translation, but what it really means in Buddhism is mindfulness. And the commentary says the same thing. This is the orthodox interpretation of what apamada is. It's just another word for mindfulness. So, in fact, even though we don't hear enough about apamada, we hear a lot, more than enough about mindfulness Which gives us much more encouragement That mindfulness really is the core of the Buddhist teaching Mindfulness is the practice of in that moment Grasping the object as it is Or it's the, the act of reminding yourself So that you see an object as it is Without judging or so on And so what you're doing is really the core of the Buddha's teaching. All of the Buddha's teaching, you're, you're doubting about or confused about what actually the Buddha taught and worried that maybe you don't know some important things about Buddhism. Well, rest assured, by all accounts, mindfulness is the core of what the Buddha taught. That's mindfulness. Appamada is being always mindful. Mm. So we're not there yet. Only an arahant is really appamada. What it means to be apamada is to finally and truly live mindfully. Ajatang susamahito to have a to be composed internally. This refers to concentration, to be focused. Mindfulness requires focus. This is why we do formal meditation. It's very possible to be mindful in daily life, but you need good focus. So whether it's in your daily life or whether it's sitting on the mat, watching your stomach rise and fall, uh, mindfulness is, is, or apamada, requires focus. Requires you to work, requires you to be vigilant. And finally, Abhijya uh, Vinayesikang. And my teacher was explaining this, uh, Ajahn Tong, explaining this. It's interesting because uh, this, this means uh, working or training to overcome or to root out or to get away from, to, to free yourself from uh, greed or desire. And and he points out the difference here with uh, with anger. You're just supposed to give it up, to just not be angry. With greed, it's a little bit different. Greed is something that you have to focus on. It's something you have to train. And this sort of goes along with the commentary that says anger is quick to change. Greed is slow to change. Craving is really what it's at, right? We get angry because we don't get what we want or because we get what we don't want. But what is it that drives us? It's not really angry, anger, not for the most part. It's desire. What is it at the root is we want to be happy, we want to be pleased, we want to be contented, we want to be satisfied. We want, 
and we want many different things but it's our wants that we have to train out of there are things that are it's much more complicated or, or, or involved to get rid of craving but anyway yeah, ultimate, ultimately it comes down to get ridding, getting rid of greed and anger through mindfulness and the, here the Buddha doesn't mention delusion because mindfulness is the opposite of delusion this practice, apamada, is the giving up of delusion and, and when you do that you attack you, you root out greed and anger and you become focused and concentrated until your mind becomes so strong that you you, you, you free yourself you become liberated There you go, there's a half an hour talk on Appamada. I know I've given many of these talks, but I think there's some new stuff in there as well. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for coming out. And the meditators here, you can go back to meditate. I've got the meditation site up so if it stays up I can answer some of the questions on there there's a whole bunch how do Buddhist teachings overcome neuroscientific facts mm -hmm. wanting relates to modulation in dopamine levels liking correlates to modulations in the subcortical structures of the brain mm -hmm. well we don't really um I mean, how do neuroscientists explain the mind? They don't really. They try to, or well, they don't really try to. Honestly, anyone who knows who's who's really actually a neuroscientist, um, I think, for the most part, doesn't claim to know very much about consciousness. Doesn't claim to have a handle on what consciousness is. Um, they certainly haven't learned. How the my how the brain creates consciousness, which is what they think, um, but it's the hard problem. Consciousness is the hard problem. So I mean, definitely there is a connection between what we call the brain, which is physical um, systems or patterns, we might say. That we that we can observe and that we can measure the relationship between that and the mind. I mean, it's possible to alter the physical and have the brain, the mind, be altered as well. Um, but and here's where it gets sketchy that you know, neuroscientists wouldn't uh, certainly agree, for the most part, or, or many of them wouldn't agree. That it's also possible to for the mind to to leave the brain, in a sense. I mean, not exactly, but for there to be an, a mental experience that is free from the confines and the um, the control of the brain. Out of body experiences, near death experiences, where the person who has them says it is completely unlike any um, ordinary experience. It's clear. It's perfect 
it's more alive than they've ever been. I, mean, I never had such an experience, except in my dreams. I think when I sleep sometimes, I, uh, I leave my body. A lot of people talk about this. Um, and I had a, this experience when I was young where it was a little bit different, where I saw something that hadn't yet happened. Left my body and saw something that hadn't yet happened. But a lot of, many people talk about these experiences. Out-of-body experiences maybe not so strong. But when the brain actually dies, uh, when the brain actually stops functioning, people have talked about um, having vertical experiences um, where, where they're able to experience the world, see even seeing, hearing, you know, even smelling perhaps, but outside of the having nothing to do with the brain. So um, what it comes down to in Buddhism, we don't have a sense of there being a soul. So the idea that aim, uh, an experience, a mental experience, could be um, created or at, at the very least um, uh, conditioned by the physical is fine. But it's also the case that a, a, a ex mental experience can affect the, the, the physical. Um, and you know it's not a one to one thing it's not it's not an equivalence you know how it actually works is much more complicated but uh, buddhism is very much open to all of this the, the the point i'd like to make i suppose is that liking is not subcortical structure the modulations of the subcortical structure of the brain wanting isn't modulation in dopamine levels are they related yes they're related are they the same thing? No, they're completely different things. One is physical, one is mental. And if you can't get that straight, I think you've got a bit of a problem. Certainly a problem with the Buddhist. So hopefully that helps. I'm sure it doesn't satisfy everyone. People have their views. Okay, here's one about someone who, who can't deal with the loss of a cat, I think. A therapist pet? Kitty person who was a soldier and returned from Iraq, I think a soldier. Any advice on meditation? Well, I, th I don't think this is a, you know, this is one of those questions where I would say you just have to read my booklet. And if you'd like, you're welcome to do a course with me, assuming you're not taking medication for your, for your uh, stress and PTSD or whatever. You can uh, you can do a course online course we have online courses. How do bhikkhus deal with nocturnal emissions? Uh, it's actually an exception. It's not a not a breach of the monastic precepts. It's not something. How you deal with it is be mindful. Uh, if you're mindful before your sleep, uh, it's um, supposed to help. If you fall asleep unmindfully, dream, you know, uh, lustful or whatever. I mean, mindfulness before you sleep clears out a lot of that. So, uh, but you know, some of it's just physical and has to do with memories and past stuff. So, it's not something you have to be worried about. Something to work out. Sanya Vipalasa. Sanyavipalasa qualify as a kusala kama. Sanyavipalasa. 
No, sanya vipalasa is enough. That's a kusala. Sanya is a kusala. Jitta is when you think, when you have a thought. Like if I get angry, that's sanya. If I think about, if I then think, boy, that person makes me mad, or boy, that person is a real jerk. That's jitta vipalasa. That's such a bad person. And then if I get the view, uh, then that's jitta vipalasa. Or if you know, jitta vipalasa would be that person deserves to die. It's just a thought. But then if you really think to yourself, yes, yes, that's right, that person, then that's Dityvipalasa. But Sanyavipalasa is just getting angry or greedy or so on. So it's all, that's already Akusala. If Tanha appears in the mind, does it always lead to Upadana or can the meditator stop it at Tanha by being mindful? I don't know. I can't remember. It has gone gone a lot easier to abstain from any kinds of sensual music. Seems to be the hardest for me. Any techniques meant to help this? Just meditation. I mean, vigilance. Eventually, you see that uh, my m music is well. It's just another attachment. It's really kind of silly. Here's a question about a different meditation practice. I'm just going to skip that one, and you should read my booklet because uh, these answers, questions just are unfortunately really only about our tradition. Killing insects. Find it difficult to comprehend reason to salvage, for example, moth. Well, it's not about salvaging, it's just about not killing. It's advice or not cause suffering, really advice, but not as Avoidable anyway. Well, it's about not creating cruelty in your mind. If you kill an animal, it's it's cruel That animal didn't want to die So doing that is considered to be cruelty There's nothing particularly special about killing It's just it's a good uh, fence post A good line in the sand right? Of course torturing beings is really bad as well Pulling the wings off of flies That's pretty awful But killing is just um, you know, it's Something easily identifiable as pretty awful Is there a point where there is no progress But rather just constantly observing reality um, Well if you mean by If you mean constantly being mindful Then that's that's the end There's no progress after that Hmm Reality cannot be defined and separated from imagination. Well, I mean, they're just words, but concepts and reality are two very different things. A concept doesn't exist, like a cat doesn't exist, but the thought about the cat exists, the thought exists. 
the conception in the mind exists, but the cat itself doesn't exist, not from a point of view of experience. So apart from that, I'm not quite sure what you're getting into. In which monastery you have studied and who is your teacher because I want to become Buddhist monk and become a mentor to become monk. Thank you for your work. Yeah, unless you live in Canada or can get a long-term Canadian visa, there's not much I can do for you. But I was ordained in uh, Thailand, in northern Thailand. My teacher's now very old and I wouldn't necessarily recommend going to his monastery to become a foreign monk because you wouldn't have much to do with him. And I can't vouch for the system set up there. If there's no self, how can we have free will? Who said there's no self? We have free will, but didn't go into much detail. Do we have free will? Hmm, I don't know. Free will, free will. Yeah, I don't really know. I think it's outside of the the realm of what's real. Reality is here and now. It's very much conditioned by very many different things. In this moment, do we have? Is there a? Is there a, a function by which? Um, the future is completely un. Uh, completely, set in stone. Out of our control. I don't know. There seems to be a free won't. What uh, I believe it was. Yeah, these these guys did this experiment. I think it wasn't it uh, Locke who said there's a free won't. Anyway, speculative, not really interested. No objective basis for morality or moral obligations. Usually, they cite Hume's famous argument: one cannot drive an ought from an is. Yeah, well, that's a very that is, that's this um, impersonal outlook Buddhism, Buddhism challenges that Suffering exists There is an intrinsic um, So I talked about this a few days ago Or a couple of days ago um, Buddhism seems to make the claim that Suffering and liking and disliking And um, happiness These are all a part of reality and yet these are oughts and these are, 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 are very much caught up in ought in the sense that suffering by its very definition you know, and by, by suffering I don't mean just pain I mean um, a, a, uh, a painful state or an unpleasant state um, Well, if it, it, it it's not even so much that it exists; it's that it um, it is perceived thus, and so the mind is in a state where it um, perceives certain things as suffering, and it perceives certain things as as pleasant, and so it has it's full of ought, in the sense of ought to be happy and ought not to be unhappy. And so really all the Buddha did was point out that 
Well, if you if you want to be happy, if happiness is what you ought to be, then you should stop doing all these things that make you unhappy. And he pointed out that immorality makes you unhappy. Now, I think it's true that once you become enlightened, you could say that there only is is, there is no more ought. Right? The mind is no longer caught up with ought to be happy and ought to not be not happy. So the idea of morality doesn't really have much weight on that person. By, by the same token, they're not able to be immoral because immorality would lead to unhappiness or it would be based on things that one has come to see clearly see are useless. One has no, no ability to get angry or greedy or so on. So understand, like, eventually the meditator comes to this is, but because we're so full of ought, the Buddha was just pointing out, and he does it in a fairly laid-back sort of way, like he's not really trying to say, thou shalt not this or that. He's just pointing out, look, if you want to be happy, stop stop hitting your, hurting yourself. That's what morality is for. That's what all of the Buddhist teaching really is. And we're done. So there you go. There's a bunch of questions. I'm not even going to look and see what's going on on YouTube. How are we doing? Hello, everyone in Second Life. Looks like you're having a good chat here. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.